Are you here to see the doctor? Yes, I brought my plant in for its annual checkup. What's wrong with your plant? It doesn't look very good. I think it's dying, but I don't know why. So I brought it in to see Dr. Oberg. I hope she can help. Hey, what kind of plant do you have? It looks so lush and healthy looking. Mm -hmm. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> this is a, a Christian plant. A Christian plant? That's what my plant is. You're kidding. <laughs> that is a Christian plant? I mean, it's, it, it just looks just off. What I mean to say is, um, what have you been feeding it? Feeding it? Yes, like what kind of food do you give it to eat? Food? You don't mean to tell me that um, you don't give it anything to eat? Like what? <laughs> well, like, um, like does it get regular worship? Well, no, but sometimes I leave the Christian radio station on when I go out. <laughs> oh. Your soil looks pretty bad, too. Um, is it rooted in Jesus Christ? Well, I think it is, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Look. I don't mean to be rude or anything, but um, how can you expect your plant to grow and be healthy if you never feed it anything? I don't know. I guess I thought it would grow just because it is a Christian plant. What do you think I should do? Or do you think it's hopeless? Well, you're in luck there because you know what? With God, nothing is hopeless, nothing at all. But. I'd start out with um, mega doses of vitamin B okay. for the B. Bible, uh, vitamin C for commitment, C. vitamin D for discipleship, and then you need to sprinkle it, <laughs> or in your case, immerse it in, in a living water, okay. and, um, and then you need to make sure it participates in regular worship, you know, so we can get some of that good air, you know, from the winds of the Spirit, but most importantly, remember to feed it daily so that its roots go down deep into Jesus Christ. <laughs> wow. You really sound like you know what you're talking about. Well, um, my plant hasn't always been this healthy. Hey, thanks a lot. Mm -hmm. Do you think I still need to wait and see Dr. Oberg? She's going to wonder what I've been doing to this poor plant. <laughs> oh, you'll be just fine. Besides, I'm sure she's seen lots worse than that. Okay. Um, anyhow, extra help <laughs> at this point wouldn't hurt at all. Um, you know what? You can even go first. It, it's a real emergency. Oh, thank you. Uh -huh. Dr. Oberg? Nicely done, ladies. Was that nicely done? I have seen worse, Colette. Um, you're welcome. 
It was probably under my own roof. I've seen worse. <laughs> if, uh, if you've come today thinking that we can look around and tell just by this what plant is healthy and what plant isn't on the inside, I hope the next few weeks we'll put a rest to that conversation for all of us go through times in our spiritual life when things are more abundant and then when things are withering, when things are luscious and growing and, and things are dormant, when things seem powerful and productive and other times where we really feel like we're spiritually dying. All of us go through the very same thing. The good news is that most of us aren't the same place the same time. We're not usually all dying on the vine, and so together we make our way along. But be sure of this, we all struggle with the same same things when we're talking about our spirituality and our spiritual life and that which is on the inside which no one can see. I wonder if it's that Jesus knew this, and so in the Gospel of John, before he leaves his disciples, he addresses the challenge that it will be to live as spiritual beings in a human world. I wonder, when he stood up, they had just sat at a table together and they had just drank the cup from the vine, just had the grape juice, and and, and they drank it and Jesus stands from the table and walks away and says, I'm not going to drink of that vine until we're all together again. And it is out of that last communion together that Jesus says the words from John 15. That's where we'll study today, John chapter 15, verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, page 764, I just want to read verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Jesus uses an illustration from non-urban life because these are the people he's talking to and that's what makes sense. And I've often wondered if he walked into our world, the various metaphors that he would use. He's chosen one so familiar, just as familiar as the preceding one. I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep. And these are familiar to the ears of those who've been raised in the Israelite tradition. Because in the Old Testament, there's a lot of language about the vineyard. Israel is the vineyard and And when Jesus now says you're the vine, he connects this New Testament community that's developing with the Old Testament community. And it's as if he's saying to his disciples, you are them. It's an identity metaphor. You're the vine. I am the branches. And it's where all conversations of spirituality begin. And I think it's where they also end. Who are you? And who are you connected to? And who do you belong to in this world? That's what the vine conversation is about. It's the last of these seven statements in the Bible. The I am statements we'll put up on the screen for you. Jesus has been busy describing what God is like. Yahweh, the I am, is the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, now the vine. Each of those statements explains something about God, the character of God, who God is, how you can expect God to be with you and in this world. The one who sustains, the one who shines light in dark places, the entrance in, the keeper of things, the life-giving overcomer, the path to travel, and, and now the vine. Not just any vine, according to John. We should pay attention to that modifier there, the true vine 
It means something in the Gospel of John. We should take note of that. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. I'll continue in verse 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will remain even more fruitful. You already, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. I'm going to pause right there because we miss all the wordplay happening in the original language, but these are about the same words, cutting off and pruning and you are clean. Those are some of the same words, words there. He's saying to the disciples, you're already pruned. Those of you standing in here with me when he says you're already clean. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, that's our abide word, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a person remains in me and I in him, this person will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he or she is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. For several weeks we'll explore this passage together. If you have a bulletin, on the front of our bulletin this passage is mentioned if you turn Jesus sideways. You see the small print there, abiding in Christ, loving one another, serving and bearing witness in the world. It's a mission statement for this church that's a few years old. This fall when the pastoral staff gathered for a retreat time together, we decided we like our mission statement and we don't want to change it. But we're not sure we know what it is and we're pretty sure nobody talks about it. And so we thought we'd talk about it for a few weeks this spring, abiding in particular. The people of God are first and foremost those who abide, who remain, who are connected, who are nourished by the vine. That's our identity. That is what we're about. That abide word, I think, is troubling for us. It is like a word from another time zone. In the Oxford Dictionary, about half of the uses of abide are now obsolete. So it's a word, almost Kathy, like in your hymn, Thine, Thine, we sang this morning. It's language we never hear anymore, abide. One author wrote, it would be like saying, and how silly does this sound, you know, calling the plays on the baseball field, the batter's up and we have two runners abiding on the bases. We don't use that kind of language. So we have this word that's not really understood, Abiding. What is it to abide? What is the pruning process that we saw Lauren illustrate here with Linda? What does fruit bearing look like? Couldn't Jesus just make us a nice list? It'd be easier. The question, by the way, never gets a direct answer in the text. What does good fruit bearing look like? And I think we should take a cue from that. If Jesus wanted us to focus on the fruit and the product, I think there would be more conversation about it. This is what the fruit looks like. This is what it tastes like. This is what it can do in the world. This is its size. These are its potentials. Jesus doesn't really talk about the fruit, and I think that's a cue for us. Maybe a good reason for us not to focus on the end product. I don't think the fruit is the main point of the passage. Grape, grape vines, I don't know a lot about. 
vineyards I don't know a lot about. Some of you do, I understand. Some of you grow your own and you've just gone through a pruning process. I think it will help us if we let the metaphor sit still with us for a while and if we don't press it too hard. Sometimes in the Bible we come to these little stories, whether they're parables, whether they're allegories, whether it's just a metaphor, I'm the vine, I'm the door, I'm the way, I'm the path. And we press them so hard, we force them, we kind of squeeze and extract out of them every possible thing that they could mean. And I'm not sure that's helpful when we're looking at the vine and the vine dresser. Just two ideas I'd like to learn from the metaphor today with you to start our seven-week-long conversation. The process of being pruned is totally optional for us, and we should know that. The passage makes it very clear. We don't have to subject ourselves to the pruning process, to the trimming process, if we don't want to. It is optional. The disciples are already with Jesus. He names them already as the clean ones. So going through the pruning process won't save me. It doesn't get me into heaven. It doesn't earn me more favor with God. It doesn't get me any more status in church. It doesn't make me more special in the world. Putting myself in that passive role and allowing the vine dresser to take some shears to me is totally optional. Don't have to do it. And maybe that's helpful for us. Maybe it's not, because I think we resist the process already on its own, and I've thought some about that, and the unique congregation we are here at Cala Mesa, I believe it's difficult for us as leaders in our families and in the community and in the institution we call the church down the hill, all the various places you folks work, you know how many of you hold the shears during the week and do the pruning? We have a congregation of leaders here whether in your own home or in your workplace, it is so difficult to put down the pruning shears. It is a passive role we take with God. Hard. Now, all religions have these things we call spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines, things we, they do, things we do. People burn candles, and they burn herbs, they chant, they roll out a prayer mat several times a day. They dance freestyle, they sit in silence, they listen to lectures on how to improve the mind. I, I visited the Scientology church in Redlands a few weeks ago with te- some teenagers. I didn't know. What's a spiritual practice of a Scientologist? Listen to tapes and more tapes and more tapes. The, cubicle, the office space in the Redlands, downtown Redlands office is full of audio and DVD. You take them home and you listen. It's a spiritual practice. In Christianity, it's been mostly about prayer and meditation and fasting and almsgiving and worshiping together and serving. And, and if we're honest, Protestant Christians don't do as well at practices as a lot of other world religions, because we're a religion that focuses on what we believe, what we know, what we study out of the scripture. We're a little more doctrine-focused than some other religions. Those people who study religious phenomena in the world today, who are watching sort of the restless spirituality that exists in the younger generations in particular, tell us that younger Christians, in America at least, are, are not just wanting to know about Christianity. They're wanting to do Christianity. 
more interest in what spiritual practices look like. This week, we'll have a group of pastors who will gather on Wednesday here, pastors from all the denominations in Ukaipa, and we'll get together for our monthly meeting, and they'll be planning the Good Friday worship service, an ecumenical worship service. We participated in that last week. But when those pastors come here and sit with us in the fellowship hall, Alice Soderbloom will feed us a meal, and most of them will have either come from their churches or, all, or be going back to carry out Ash Wednesday services where they'll take their thumb and place the ashen cross on the forehead of the congregation members and say to them, from dust you came to dust you go. And people will contemplate. It's a serious day in Christianity. It's not a practice we participate in. But we will use these weeks during Lent to think about spiritual practices ourselves. Abiding, staying connected, being attached to the root. What will it look like for us? I think in Adventist Christianity, it's usually looked like Bible study and daily devotionals and studying the Sabbath school lesson and making the little check marks on the card when we came to Sabbath school as children and, and attending to the poor and coming to church and giving our offerings. And we think of this as our spiritual practices. This is how we have abided. I wonder if we've made it difficult or completely misunderstood that abiding world word. I think we fail. We feel like we've failed at least because we can't tell in our spiritual growth which plant we look a little more like. And man, it's so hard to get up every morning and do that again and again and again. And pretty soon we don't do those things anymore. We consider those the ways we get spiritually healthy, but... Boy, it doesn't always feel like it's working. Kirby wears a pedometer, and he took it off of his belt this week one night as he was getting ready for bed and pushed the little button where the lady talks to you. And it tells you how you did for the day. It's a report card. It's rather obnoxious, actually. It's supposed to be good news. She says to him, you know, he's walked 24 miles. 24. I'm like, you didn't walk 24 miles today. He said, I told you I walk a lot down there on that campus. I don't know how many days worth of mileage that was, but whatever. 24 miles, the lady says. And she, then she says, you've burned 250 calories. <laughs> he looks at this thing. What in the world? Who would walk 24 miles if you're only going to burn 250 calories? We wouldn't do it. We wouldn't do it. Uh, we had to watch our daughters play basketball, our daughter's team this week. We drove to Orange County, and it's just for all of the skills they've practiced all season. They're a fifth a fifth uh, category team playing a third category team. It's like sending little mice into tigers. And we had to sit there and watch. It doesn't matter how long they've been practicing. They're not only going to lose. They're going to get slaughtered. And we know. Three minutes into the game, we, we look at each other. Do, do, do we have to watch this happen? Do we have to watch a score of 85 to 15? You just want to say, stop. Don't. Not fair. You don't accomplish anything. They can really play basketball, but you make them look like they can't. And, of course, the parent in you gets all excited. Tonight, Mesa Grande girls will participate in these championship rounds. Hopefully, they're a little more seated, a little more closely seated with their team. Madeline LaIngle says that spiritual practices are sort of like piano etudes, the part none of us like if you've been trained to play an instrument. And often we'd like to skip over the etudes and go to the sonatas and the concertos. They're just a lot more fun. She says what happens when you skip over is you don't know what to do when you get there. It's like arriving on a mountaintop and not knowing what you do when you got there. 
You need the etudes so you can do the concertos. And I very much relate to that as a person trained in the piano. When I was a senior in academy, they asked if I would play during our weekend exercises, play piano during the offering for church, a piano solo. And I had just been listening to Dino. You all remember when Dino was a big, big name in Christian piano music? I had never watched him on TV. Once I started watching his performances, that kind of killed it for me. But I loved the Dino music because I love those heavy chords. And I heard this music. I'll just play you the part. This is what got my attention. Just this much of it. I heard it and I'm like, I'm going to play that for graduation weekend. Oh, if it doesn't do anything else, I'm playing that. But he hit that chord again. Um, And then he did it again. Oh, I fell in love with the song immediately. I love, I'm like, I'm playing that song. And I got the music and it was just black ink all over the page. I am in so much trouble. I don't do etudes. I played by ear mostly. And I spent the next 15 days having a girl who could read black ink play it on one piano while I learned it by ear on the other piano. So that by the time Sabbath came, we printed the title and the bulletin and everything. This is what I was playing. I had no idea what kind of a stupid song I had picked. I wanted to play it so bad, but I hadn't done my etudes. And you don't just arrive on top of that spiritual mountain. You get there because you've been practicing with the presence of God day after day after day. I wonder in Adventist Christianity if we've made this hard because we haven't understood abiding. While etude practice is important, I wonder, and Bible study is important, I wonder, and and coming to Sabbath school and worship, I wonder if if we've misunderstood all these things we do as good Christians and we've, we've inserted them for what it is to abide with Christ. Somewhere along the years I heard a, of a college student who wrote a paper for a college class, a rather sassy term paper, which got my attention immediately. I wish I was so clever to think of a paper like this supposed to write a paper on spiritual, the spiritual life of an Adventist Christian, and this college student decided he would take all of the things Ellen White tells us we should do during the day. And he added them all up and found out the conclusion of his term paper is there is not enough time in your day to be a good Christian, according to Ellen White. That is not abiding We only get a couple of clues in the Bible, in the text, if abiding is going well. One, in the text, it says several times, there will be joy, and there will be more of it. It's a word John likes in the gospel. My grandmother read her morning watch book every day without fail, and when they traveled to our house, she brought it with her, and we listened every day, day after day after day, but she never told the rest of her body that this brought her more joy. The gospel says there's supposed to be more joy when you abide with Christ. And it also says, in, down in verse 17, which is the summary of what's happening with the vine and the branches conversation, verse, chapter 15, verse 17. This is my command, that you love each other. By the way, the ethics of John are summarized in the preceding paragraph and in this text, love. 
our abiding should turn us into loving people, more and more loving people. I should be able to look over my shoulder and, and see that this week I'm, I'm a little more loving, a little more generous, a little more tolerant, a little more accommodating, a little more understanding, a little more sacrificial, a little more hospitable than I was last week and the week before and last year. That is a measure if abiding is happening and working a fruit in my life. What is the abiding supposed to look like? During our sermon series, we will talk about a few spiritual practices. We'll try and talk about ones we think would do us some good here at Calamesa. Next week, I'll talk about the practice of silence, what it is to be silent people. We'll talk about hospitality and welcoming the stranger. We'll speak about forgiveness. We'll speak about social justice as a spiritual practice. We'll speak about humility. Those are a few of the things. What should you do if you want to abide? Then if it isn't a list of things that you do, I I just invite you over the next few weeks, ask yourself, where and when during my week am I allowing for a vital connection with God to take place? Where and when can I see that a vital connection is taking place? That's what stay connected means. That's what abiding means, staying connected. What does your fellowship with God look like? What does it take? Are you allowing time for it? And as we move towards Easter, I suggest you just think of one practice between now and then. Not five, not ten. Every temperament type will lean towards something or the other. Just think about one. It can be scripture. It can be scheduled prayer times. It can be music. It can be silence. It can be nature or journal writing or or read a book. I suggest the Desert Fathers during this time period. It can be art. Art, creativity as a spiritual practice. It can be living without something or changing a habit. It can be a new kind of ritual you bring into your your daily schedule. The question is, does it invite fellowship with God? And if you can answer yes, you're abiding. The second thing I'd like to learn from the passage is just to acknowledge who is holding the pruning shears. The gardener does the work. It is a gardener who brings about the transformation, not you and I. And we have a gardener who knows what he's up to. Is that good news to anyone? It's a gardener who knows where the trimming and pruning should take place. Chris Church told me a story earlier this week when he was a 14-year-old teenager growing up in Oregon. He went to work for the neighbors for the summer, and it was any odd job they asked him to do. They would pay him for it, and he noticed that this plush vineyard that was there must have looked something like what we were seeing earlier, that it was sort of overgrown, that the the, uh, stabilizers underneath were rotting. There were three or four stakes that were supporting it, and they were rotting in the the Oregon Oregon weather, and the wires holding all these uh, vines together were sagging all the way to the ground, and this 14-year-old teenager thought, I can fix that. I can do that. So he decided to build new stabilizers. And he built these frames to take out the old and put in the new. And when he took out the old, he realized he has to remove the old wiring as well. So he snips all the old wire, and now he he has vines laying on the ground. And then he 
put the new stabilizers in place and he ran brand new wiring and at the end of the day, in the middle of August, which is about the only time there's sun in Portland, he's got vines on the ground that are dying. So he did what any 14-year-old kid would do. He started to cut the dying parts away. You can't put them back up on the vine because it's going to show the next day. So he starts to dice it all up and, and lift up what's not dead and put it back up on top of the wire and walk away only to come back the next morning and realize he killed the whole thing. Gone. Huge, beautiful, abundant, prize-winning grapes. The man of the house was so angry, Chris says, that his wife had to separate them. Wouldn't, wouldn't allow him to talk to Chris. And the conclusion of his story is really true. Isn't it good that our gardener knows what he's doing? Go back and look at those verses there very carefully because when we talk about cleaning and pruning and trimming, there are at least a couple of things happening in the passage. There is a kind of pruning that happens in the spring and there is a kind of pruning that happens in the fall. And in the text, both are encompassed there. One says, you know, certain parts of the branches that are producing fruit, they get trimmed and pinched back and certain parts that are fruitless, they get lifted up which makes sense in the way that spring pruning is done. The fruit, fruitless branches still attach to the vine. They're just lifted up and tied in place because next year they're going to bring the solid stock that will produce fruit. And later down in the text it says those that are, are withered up and dry, they're going to be burned. And some people have understood that last part Fruit, not those that don't produce fruit that are withered up and falling on the ground will be burned and as a judgment statement. If you don't produce fruit, you're going to get snipped off and burned in the hellfire. And they connect that passage with a couple of others in the other parts of the gospel and read this as a judgment parable. And I just want to tell you this morning, this is not about judgment. There are just a couple of different kinds of prunings that go on. And in the fall, after all the harvest has happened, guess what falls to the ground? That which is used up. Those things that aren't necessary anymore, we could say in the metaphor, for the life of the church that have fallen down now, that have been used, they get raked in a stack. And like what all vineyard owners would do, that's rubbish now and it gets burned. It doesn't mean you get burned if you don't produce fruit. I hope you heard in the passage when Jesus said to the disciples, you are already clean because of my words. That is a statement about your status. That is grace in this story. It is not a parable about if you don't produce, I'm going to lop you off and send you to the devil. It is rather a vine dresser who says if you choose to show up, if you choose to put your own shears down, if you choose to let me do this process in you, we can create something. And I also believe, out of the words of Jesus, it is, in his farewell mind, a warning to his disciples. I really am going to leave you now. It really is getting more difficult in this world. You have had me here. You have had these teachings. You understand them. You know what my instructions are now. Rely upon them. Stay connected to me. Abide with me. Abide in this fellowship because the world is pressing in. According to the Gospel of John, the world hates you. Press in. Stick together. Abide. Stay and remain because you're not going to see me in a little while and this is how you're going to survive. 
And abiding has been a theme from the beginning to the end. At the very beginning, they asked Jesus, Rabbi, where do you abide in chapter 1? And at the very end, they get on Jesus' case when he wants the beloved disciple to stay with him. And Jesus says, what's it to you if he abides with me? Abiding has been in the conversation from the beginning to the end of the Gospel of John. Where do you stay connected? To whom do you belong? It's Jesus' warning. Not only to uh, an affirmation of who you belong to, but where you should stay connected because you're about to lose me. Roberta Bondi, a favorite theologian of mine, tells a story that when she comes home from work after teaching all day at her university, she's a fabulous teacher, theology professor, about the last thing she wants to do is interact with anyone. Her preference is to, you know, take off her shoes and get comfortable and sit on the couch or curl up somewhere and ignore everyone. <laughs> she's been dealing with people all day. When she comes home from work, however, she walks into the kitchen and she starts peeling carrots and potatoes with her husband, and they start preparing a meal for supper. And then they call the family to the table and their teenage children come and they all sit together and she still would rather go sit in a chair or go curl up on the couch because she's pretty exhausted. But she says, you know what? I just go to the table and sit down. I just show up. And I find that if I just show up, the most amazing transformation takes place. We don't have to create that transformation. That is the miracle work of the Holy Spirit. The invitation from John 15 is, will you just show up? That's it. That becomes our prayer to God. Dwell now in us. Abide. In Jesus' name we ask for this. Amen.